This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, populism will eat itself. As the Capitol riots in Washington put American democracy in crisis, Donald Trump is banned from Twitter and facing an historic second impeachment. Can his grip on American politics be broken? China's crackdown on pro-democracy activists saw 55 people arrested in Hong Kong last week. Does it matter what the West says, with China now stronger and more resurgent? The travel industry wants to return to normal in 2021, but what is normal? And if the arts is one sector in which Britain is truly world-beating, why is the government seemingly hell-bent on sealing our musicians and performers off from Europe? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. As regular listeners know, we've got dailies on diverse topics on Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, plus the invaluable Start Your Week on Monday mornings. Subscribe on your favourite app so you don't miss any episodes. Now let's say hello to today's panel. First up, welcome to the CEO of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Andrew. So what did you make of Keir Starmer's interview on the Mar show at the weekend saying that Labour's not going to renegotiate the EU deal if it gets into government? I mean, look, it it was odd timing, if nothing else, given that we hopefully still have Scottish elections uh, happening this year. And as we've said many times on the show, you know, this constant priority of the red wall over the tartan wall is is probably short sighted for Labour. Um, But it's also worth pointing out that he can't unilaterally undo Labour Party policy on free movement. Only its conference can do that. And I just don't think he really needed to say anything at all. Keeping Sturm would have probably been a bit cleverer. But I do think that Starmer is doing all of this because he thinks it's his best chance of Labour winning the next election. Um, I just think it's a bit of a miscalculation. Um, and and, and Labour are just sort of stuck in the same position they have been throughout Brexit, you know, with a large majority of its voters uh, and nearly all of its members and, and PLP being pro-European, but with enough pro-Brexit nationalisty type uh, ex-Labour voters that the party feels it needs their support to stay in the game. And but the really important thing is that the strength of the SNP and boundary changes combined means that an overall victory is is pretty impossible for Labour, whatever their position is on things like free movement and the customs union. And so to get a majority, the problem in the UK is that there are three anti-nativist parties in England and four in Scotland and Wales. So unless they work together, 
they're a bit doomed. You know, even if the Greens just chip off 2% and the Lib Dems 5%, that's enough together with the SNP to make an internationalist progressive victory pretty impossible. So in many respects, I think, therefore, at this stage, it would probably make more sense for Starmer to be talking about his support for PR or electoral reform or equal votes, whatever you want to call it. A, to stop the Tories reversing everything a more progressive government might do in future, and B, because the Greens and the Lib Dems just aren't going to support Labour at the next election without it. Otherwise, they're they're basically going out to the wicket with a broken bat. Also with us today, welcome back, Alex Andreo, Cook, commentator, sailor, you name it, he can do it. Hello, Alex. (laughs) Hello. So this is the week that freight supposedly returns to big quotes, normal after New Year. And we're already hearing horror stories about overwhelmed customs officials and hauliers, loads of anecdotal evidence of empty shelves in Northern Ireland, across the north of England. Michael Goh's warning of significant additional disruption, which of course he promised wouldn't happen. Is the message finally getting through that Brexit actually has damaged our trade? Yeah, I I think those reports are not limited to Northern Ireland, north north of England anymore, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Several national newspapers are reporting shortages of fresh fruit and veg really all, all around the place. Um, I can add a little bit of an anecdote of my own um, to this. Um, Please so do. I had parcels from uh, Korea and New Zealand this week come through and they were just waved through customs. Ordinarily, they would attract duty. At the same time, unable to order anything from some regular suppliers in Austria and France. So I I do think customs are overwhelmed. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that suddenly all parcels are coming through. Yeah, and we've just seen this astonishing story of for phytosanitary uh, security, Dutch customs are now confiscating ham sandwiches from British lorry drivers on the way in. Yeah, I mean, that was was quite widely publicised even before Brexit, that you couldn't take sandwiches across. Um, But I I think the the problem, the Road Haulage Association are saying there are already log jams. It's just they're at factory gates and distribution centres. They they sort of haven't gotten to the port yet. And uh, I was listening to a, 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 a freight expert, John Shirley, who was saying that you can't organize even the simplest consignment uh, to Europe. It's become almost impossible because everything moves at the pace of the the least prepared, slowest item that's in a mixed shipment, if that makes sense. Yeah. So even if even if 99 out of 100 people have the simplest thing, you know, going in that truck, if one of them cocks up or if one of them has something in their shipment that requires an extra check, all the other 99 items now go at this slower pace. Completing the panel, it's former diplomat and the Bunker World Service News Desk correspondent, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi. How are you doing? Well, uh, surviving, you know, uh, getting used to the lockdown three. Yes. Uh, We've been told to prepare for the worst weeks of the COVID pandemic coming up. Um, The government's reported to be considering ending support bubbles. Healthcare professionals are worried about the inadequacy of test and trace. And yet when you kind of look out in the streets, compliance with masks and the stay-at-home order doesn't seem to be quite as enthusiastic as it was in April and May. Are you expecting government to to take a harder line on this? Or, uh, you know, are are we going to see an acceptance that essentially the people who are not following the rules are the ones who can't afford to because they can't afford to not go to work? 
Well, I think what we're going to see if we just look at what's happened in the last uh, eight months is the government will say there isn't going to be a harder line and they'll stick with that statement until the day before when a hospital in one part of London <laughs> falls over and then suddenly there'll be a press conference and a new announcement of, of new new restrictions and new regulations. That seems to be the way they're doing it. What sort of situation are we in where, where Chris Whitty is essentially pleading with people to comply and yet he feels himself unable to to set out the concrete measures he wants from government. It's almost as if government is being bypassed in the conversation between Whitty and the public. Yeah, I, I wonder whether, never thought I'd say this, maybe we're missing Dominic Cummings. It seems that there isn't somebody in government who's able to sit down, look at the evidence coming in, and take a really clear view on what we need to do for the next week, the next month, the next three months. And therefore, the decisions are being made from hour to hour, and, and that seems to be where we find ourselves. So, the unthinkable finally happened. Donald Trump has been banned from Twitter. In the light of last week's Capitol riots, which left five people dead, the social media giant permanently suspended the president's account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Other platforms followed suit, with Trump banned or suspended from Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube, Pinterest, and Spotify, amongst others. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's, I don't know what he's going to do for his mood boards with Pinterest. <laughs> off. And also, uh, Pornhub put out a message saying he's also banned from our platform. So that's good to know. <laughs> And in an additional very minor matter, uh, Trump is also facing impeachment charges from House Democrats. Will they be able to remove him from office and prevent him from running again before Inauguration Day? Naomi, last week's scenes in Washington were absolutely harrowing. You said it yourself on Twitter, if you don't impeach for this, what on earth do you ever impeach for? Well, you know, pretty much as we're speaking, Democrats have introduced an article of impeachment against Trump, uh, accusing him of inciting violence against the government of the United States. Now, obviously, the, the decision has been made. Are there dangers to pursuing this route anyway? I mean, the, the the benefits outweigh any dangers that there are. I'm not saying there won't be dangers, but but him not being impeached would have just given him legitimacy um, and gives Republicans an excuse to cheer on any you know continued political relevance he might have, and hopefully this totally nixes any chance of him trying to run again in 2024. Him having been a one-term president this time, um, and uh, you know, yes, it, it might trigger some of his supporters to further believe all of their deep state theories. But, you know, we have to send a message that, um, you know, to moderate Americans and to the rest of the world. And, and, and remember that America is a much weaker country than it was because of everything this fucker has done over the last four years. Um, and if, if they can't be seen to be dealing with this, like, complete megalomaniac nincompoop, then who are they to be telling China, Russia, Venezuela, anyone else what to do and and you know we we can't not do this because of how his supporters may react to it you don't refuse to arrest a suspected fraudster or suspected rapist accusation of of course both of which have been leveled at trump in the past just because their friends family and supporters would be upset about it and the same has to apply to the president uh, it's the right thing to do and, and and i'm glad that that as we've been recording moves towards that have been made it's remarkable seeing Republicans who spent five years saying, fuck your feelings and you lost, get over it, suddenly calling for healing and for the country to come together. Often people like Ted Cruz, who were willing handmaidens of this uh, this approach to politics, 
a, a lot of, frequently over the weekend you were we were confronted with those kind of moments that made you think like cabaret can you you know do you think you can control these people has the republican party lost control of its supporters are they now no longer listening to the party and listening only to trump well, before I answer that, just to say, of course, that we've heard some of this here in the UK as well after Brexit, you know, now's the time to move on and heal and all the rest of it without any olive branch to remain as whatsoever. So often that kind of stuff is, is disingenuous and because they, they're feeling that the tide is turning. But I think this is just not, it's not just a Republican American issue. You know, social media's impact has been to po- help polarize debate. And we've seen similar partisanship, obviously, in the UK too. And I think some Republicans via scenes on capital Hill have belatedly realized the damage Trump could do to American democracy in the future and just no longer want to play his game of brinkmanship anymore. Alex, it's been really astonishing how quickly Trump's phone call asking the Georgia Secretary of State to find him more votes has just been completely overshadowed. That in itself, you would imagine, would have been an impeachable offence, but look what happens next. And many Republicans, particularly in the House, seem completely at peace with this. They proceeded to vote against, uh, to set aside the election results. What has this episode done to the Republican Party, do you think? Is it, you know, it is now like there's only one party that believes in actual democracy and they're called the Democrats? Well, look, this has been the case with Trump for the last four years. There have been dozens of incidents which could have brought any other president down. But his MO is that his latest outrageous act becomes cover for the previous one because, you know, everyone has limited bandwidth. So so when you rain down this stuff, a lot gets lost. Now, the Georgia phone call is a possible prosecution. I've been reading a lot of legal analysis on it. It's by no means a slam dunk because it requires intent, which would need prosecutors to show that Trump knows he lost the election. So in a weird way, his level of absolute denial may be a shield. Um, but what would be the benefits of moving against him right now? as opposed to in three weeks' time. He could pardon himself if he knew what the charges were, for instance. So I think we should allow the prosecutors to do their job, especially at state level. It might not move at the pace we want it to, but it might move um, in surprising ways. I mean, the spectacle of what went on in the Capitol was bizarre this mixture of absurdity and genuine terror you kind of had these like cosplay ben franklin types and the guys in animal skins and some guy who looked like a lost ewok with who managed to (laughs) steal a a police riot shield and all these kind of confused grandmas in their zip-up uh sweatshirts and then a guy in black tactical gear with wrist restraints clearly ready to take hostages and you know, uh, commit terrible acts. It was kind of farce and real horror at the same time, which seems to be quite emblematic of the whole Trump era. What really uh, struck me about, you know, listening to the Vox Pops from people outside the Capitol, what was really clear was that so many genuinely believed Trump's lies about a stolen election, and they were in visible distress. Like a friend who works in mental health described this as crisis mode. Trump has quite literally radicalized them. He has drove them to, to, driven them to extremities. Now, I'm not excusing or downplaying what happened, but what I am saying is that some understanding of the drivers is necessary in order to deal with it effectively. Because, you know, throwing 
water at a chip fire may seem like a good idea in the panic of the moment, but a tiny bit of critical detachment may suggest otherwise. I think effectively the US needs a domestic de-radicalization program. Perhaps we have somebody on the podcast who's got experience with de-radicalization. Maybe we can have, have a word with them a little bit later and see what they think. But in the meantime, I mean, I, you know, I can't lie. It, it has been sort of, it has been enjoyable today to watch the videos of protesters being arrested, protesters with big quotes around there were, of course, rioters being arrested and denied flights and kind of weeping in departure lounges. Are we allowed some schadenfreude? Uh, or, or is that counterproductive? And Always. did that guy did that guy really taser himself in the balls? Snopes Always. is saying he didn't. I, I, I think well, that's clearly not true. But but I also choose to believe it is. Um, <laughs> yes, we are allowed Schadenfreude, uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, without it, I don't think I could have sustained myself throughout the last four years. It's if a very underrated form of therapy. It is a very underrated. I mean, you know, we are now internationally the I told you so squad so <laughs> let's enjoy it Arthur you know a little bit about radicalization do you think America needs its own de-radicalization internal program yeah it does I mean uh, at risk of uh, sounding like this is you know a slightly kind of flip point America is suffering a wave of uh, extreme radicalization among certain communities so much of what's happening is familiar from anybody who's spent time looking at other radical movements, including Islamist radicals. You've got people who are isolated, who have constructed a single narrative about how the world is has worked and, and how it works against them. There's charismatic leaders, they're networked online. And it, this being America, they have access to a lot of weaponry. So uh, yeah, it does need it. The challenge is that unlike any case study that I can think of, these radicals, some of them are absolutely an inherent part of the establishment of that country. Even in Saudi Arabia, the, the al-Qaeda clerics were not, uh, you know, the, the sort of establishment clerics. So, yeah, I, I don't know how America is going to deal with this in the long term, but it, it, it's an extremely serious issue. And also the al-Qaeda clerics didn't have three of the most significant mainstream news channels hammering their message. It is a, it is a really difficult one to crack, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was struck. I, I looked on the Fox News uh, website the other day, just so that the listeners don't have to. And <laughs> the entire framing and narrative of this story has already become conservatives are being unfairly persecuted by big tech and, and the Democrats. So it's literally, you know, you, you, you're only three days out from attempting a violent coup and you're now the victims. It, it's amazing. Well, let's talk about that that social media side because Trump has been thrown off every platform, with the exception, I think, of MySpace and Habbo Hotel. By the way, I think TikTok really missed the trick there. They should have been the one who said, "You're welcome on ours," <laughs> <laughs> but you have to make your announcements in the form of dance. Um, well, this is his—I mean, being serious about it, Twitter is his main form of communication. He went over the heads of the media, the establishment politics straight to the voters straight to the base it was his main and only form of communication firstly you know alex uh, how is he going to reach them now in parlor has been cut off as well oh do me a favor he's the fucking president all he needs to do is issue a statement and will be carried by every network this will is it though no no, no will it though on, because it, it, this is ridiculous it's the mm -hmm. most ridiculous part of this whole free speech faux outrage he, he's a man who can literally interrupt all networks with a direct address from his office 
The question is, how does he reach them after the 20th? And should we be concerned about that? That's when it gets interesting, both because he will have lost his official platform, the presidency, so he may be less effective, but also because he will be unchained by cabinet ministers threatening to amendment 25 his ass. So he will be much more dangerous. And I think if I were those social media channels, I would spend a lot less time looking at um, the individual user and spend a lot more fucking time looking at my algorithm and asking what is it in the way that I promote Facebook posts, that I curate tweets and present them to people. What is it in that that encourages polarization and created someone like Trump? The cutting off of parlor is really interesting because you know it, that's got that's gone beyond the user and into the platform itself. So Google and Apple have removed the app from their app stores, and Amazon Web Services have ceased to serve parlor. Also, there was incredible stories talking about hackers getting into parlor and discovering that the whole thing was built on like a kind of cheapo WordPress thirty yeah, day free trial. Been, it's all been leaked. All of it's all available now. So you know. Andrew, all, all of your little messages on Parler. <laughs> well, as as uh, as one of our Patreon people said, come in, come into my Parler, send the spider to the no fly list. So you know it's, it all it all fits together. But there are several British MPs on Parler who's presumably their uh, verification data is also being leaked in this info dump. I mean that's not going to look good. Arthur, what 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 does the cutting off of Parler actually mean for the shape of future political discussion in the social media sphere? Because you know, this is effectively cutting off the right-wing social network is pretty unambiguous, isn't it? Well, yes, but, I mean, it's right now it feels like a significant moment, and I guess it is, but obviously it will be easy for a new thing to spring up, and that will spring up. And if you look back through fairly recent history, there have been different web forums that at different times have been used by the far right, 4chan, 8chan, and so on. So these things come and go. I think Parler was slightly more user-friendly than some of those weirder ones. You know, there will be, there'll be new avenues for, for people to use. I feel that the, the perhaps the bigger question is sort of whether the right tries to kind of reorganize itself altogether, because it seems to me that They've now set up such a kind of clear disparity between big tech, which is, let's face it, dominated by liberals, but also libertarians, and a whole group of people who've decided that their message doesn't exist there. And I just wonder whether we're going to see a new kind of environment which allows the right wing to sort of congregate. No, I mean, this is it. I mean, Twitter and Facebook and the lesser platforms are now in, are now involved in politics, whether they'd like it or not. They have been after years of, of saying, well, we're just a platform and we bear no responsibility for, uh, for content, they finally mm. had to take a, had, had to make a move. Republicans already hate big tech. You know, does this mean that they are likely to be in the crosshairs of, quote, reform in future? Yeah, look, I mean, look, the social media companies will be in the crossfire for reform regardless. Um, it's obviously incredibly difficult to get away from the impact they've had over the past few years on our politics. Um, and, you know, each of them has taken a, a different position or editorial. Facebook has tended to abdicate responsibility, as you've said, for moderating posts um, and have only recently, uh, you know, uh, or, or have only recently intervened like, like Twitter have. But to me, it feels a bit like they're acting only after seeing the Dems take control of the presidency, the Senate and the House. 
And so they're just going with the tide. I don't think this is some Damascene conversion that finally they were pushed too far. Uh, I think they just want to curry favor with the regime of the day. And I think one of the big questions is really who should make decisions about censorship because if if Twitter doesn't then perhaps Amazon who of course provide a lot of the servers that run the platforms um, might and, and, and already have done in the um, example of Parler and if they don't then maybe it's going to be the you know the internet service providers the, the virgins and the BTs of this world and if they don't perhaps governments will begin to step in and none of these is a comfortable solution I suppose um, but new rules are just as likely to force these companies to carry content they don't want to carry as mandating them uh, you know around what they should be deleting um and and so it will probably end up feeling quite authoritarian no matter what comes out of it i think all those social media companies have been operating in a void a void left by governments feeling reticent to set the rules but we can't expect a collection of disparate private companies who are in it for profit to create the ethics of how we use this thing for the 21st century. You know, we have to take responsibility for it and give them the parameters to to, to operate within. It's no good going, oh, they're not doing a good enough job. We've never told them what we actually want them to do. Meanwhile, the good news just keeps on coming. Let's turn to China. In Hong Kong, dozens of pro-democracy activists who ran in an unofficial opposition primary last year were arrested in the most sweeping use yet of the new national security law. The arrests were seen as a clear statement of intent from Beijing and they will likely chill an already dwindling protest movement despite widespread condemnation from Western governments. Arthur, what's actually happening here? Is this a, is this a, a definitive uh, ratcheting up of what uh, Beijing wants to do? Yes, it is. I think what we're seeing is a determination to completely wipe out the sort of pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong and effectively result in a situation where the political culture of Hong Kong is no different at all from mainland China. And one of the things that that is quite notable uh, that happened in this recent wave of arrests is it included uh, foreign citizens, including citizens of non-Chinese heritage. And whilst that sounds like a slightly awkward sort of ethnic determination point, there has been a bit of a taboo around that in the past, but that taboo has gone. Now, of course, Hong Kong has a huge expat community, uh, and and so that, that may affect the way people feel about going there to do business and, and other things. I mean, how, how could participating in a primary, which is part of the legal framework, be a threat to national security? I mean, uh, uh, has China misled the world on the, the nature of this new law? Well, in a way, I think they haven't misled the world because they basically said this is a new security law which overrides all the other laws and we will decide what is national security and you will do what we say. And in that respect, they've stuck with their word. The problem is their word, as I've said, is is completely antithetical to what traditionally held sway in Hong Kong, which was a, which was a form of democracy, albeit you know, hedged around by, by mainland China. And and so I, I genuinely think what they're seeking to do is to erase the distinction. There used to be one country, two systems. It's now one country, one system. Naomi, you've, you've lived in China. The pro-democracy movement has been really driven into the ground by the Beijing government. This is the, the worst and most significant and conspicuous, but by no means the only one. Is there a future for activism in Hong Kong? I mean, it's... <sighs> 
it's incredibly worrying uh, and the world needs to stand strong uh, against it. Um, we need a strong US and a strong Europe standing against China's human rights abuses. But both of them have been weakened over the last four years, um, while China has, of course, worked very hard to build its economic power base and to curry favour with with lots of other countries. Um, and, you know, the economic benefits of dealing with China appear to trump the moral challenges of dealing with China. And that, that just can't be good news for for Hong Kong pro-democracy activists or, or mainland Chinese pro-democracy activists. Dominic Raab reiterated the UK's offer to holders of British British national overseas passports, BNOPs, yeah. in Hong Kong to come and live in Britain. Is there anything we can actually do? I mean, as a now as the exciting independent coastal nation that we are and so on. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, it's welcome. It's good. It, it probably should be extended to, to more than just the, the small number of Hong Kongers that are currently eligible for, for BNO. Uh, but we need to do a lot more if we want to be seen as as good world citizens. And I'm not sure that this government that we have in the UK does uh, in terms of, of what we've seen of their treatment of other immigrants and uh, and the way they deal with other countries and how they're willing to flout international treaties and, and break laws. But you would hope that at the very least we would be putting in place procurement procedures to make sure that we aren't buying PPE or any other products made by Uyghur slaves, for instance. Um, China's human rights abuses go far beyond, of course, the treatment of the pro-democracy activists. Um, uh, and, and it's all those sorts of things that, that we need to be standing firm on as well. Alex, the, the EU has recently signed a trade pact with China a deal which could still be rejected by the European Parliament. Former Hong Kong Governor Chris Patton said that signing the deal would make a mockery of Europe's ambitions to be taken seriously as a, as a global player. What would happen if the deal was rejected? The EU is a, clearly a much larger and stronger trading bloc than the UK is. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a fairly limited investment um, deal. But yes, you're right. There is a level at which it makes a nonsense of all the grand rhetoric about European values, which we've been hearing quite a lot recently. But the question is a philosophical one, and, and, and it's one to which I do not pretend to know the answer. Do you democratize places by cutting them off or by keeping them in the tent and nudging them in the right direction while constantly sort of banking small wins? I mean, the same question precisely actually applies to what to do with Hungary right now. Do you keep them in your orbit of influence or do you run the danger of infecting your own system with autocracy by doing that. It, it's a really difficult balance. But I would suggest that the reason, the, the, the reason China is going hell for leather now in Hong Kong is not unrelated to the fact that over the last four years they've been cut adrift by the United States and find themselves in a in a trade war, they find in that a political opportunity to say, well, you fucking hate us anyway, so we might as well do this thing that we want to do anyway. So I think I would fall very cautiously on the side of saying actually increasing relations with them little by little is a better way to go. Biden takes a very different approach to policy. Do you expect him to take a different approach to China? Because weirdly, Trump made a, a huge play of being strong with China, but purely on a trade front and not, not, with no interest whatsoever in human rights. 
Yeah, exactly. I think it will be a different focus. I mean, in many ways, Biden comes in in an ideal position to influence events because he will inherit a situation of maximum trade war, tech war, tariffs, aggressive rhetoric. So he can come to the table with actually all the cards to play with. If he keeps the same position, it's not big news because he hasn't actually done anything different. But if, but that's that's actually a sort of mirage because the effect of a tariff war is cumulative over time. So actually keeping the same position continues to punish China. Now, if he decides to play a little nicer on a couple of issues in exchange for stuff, the focus may be different to Trump's, who was only asking for commercial consideration. Biden might focus on human rights. He may even decide to escalate things if um, if he thinks China are out of control. So he he really comes to the table with a lot of options right now. He, he could not wish to be in a better position as US president vis-a-vis China. Arthur, just finally, what does making this move now say about what China wants in the world? You've described how it wants to unify the system so there's no difference in Hong Kong and the rest of China. What is China trying to say to the rest of the planet? about its position and its ambitions for itself? Well, one of the things I think that people should try to focus a bit more on is Xi Jinping himself. You know, the world is obsessed with the psychology of Vladimir Putin, and and very fascinating it is. But we don't get much of that looking at Xi Jinping. But in fact, for example, Xi Jinping thought is a compulsory subject in um, Chinese universities. And I wonder whether it should be in Western universities, because it is him who's really driving this kind of ultra-aggressive stance from China. That's a really good point. Um, and, and we need more of that in, in, across a range of subjects being taught at, at UK universities. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think you know, China definitely has, been a, has clearly had a perception of itself as a world power that deserves to be back in world power status. And that's, that's been going for decades. But what Xi Jinping is doing is something slightly different. He, I mean, in his own way, he's making China great again. And I say that with deliberate reference to the slightly crude, aggressive way that Trump approached it. I'm not saying he's like Trump, you know, personally, clearly totally different um, personality. But the aggressive pursuit of power by one individual with a particular worldview is, is, is really what's driving what's happening at the moment in China. To, to your uh, point about the uh, understanding the psychology of the leader, I can't remember who's the headline, who does she think she is, but I thought it was a very good headline. And <laughs> are there particular moments we should look out for in the first sort of six months of this year? Is China likely to probe Joe Biden, give him a poke, see how he, rea- how he reacts? Well, I'm sure that, you know, there will be some set piece engagements. I mean, what what Alex has said already about the 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 issue of Biden's got quite a lot of cards there in the sense that he's got these trade cards, but on the other hand, he cares about human rights, which is a, is a different sort of part of the argument to, to what Trump feels. But I guess, I mean, the really big things to keep an eye on, and, and Andrew, you and I spoke about this right at the start of the year, is is the situation with Taiwan. Is Xi Jinping going to try and test Biden, see how far he's willing to go in defense of Taiwan? I don't think we're going to see a war there, but I think you might see some sort of escalation in, in, in on the Taiwan Straits. Oh, we are the kings of the low bar, aren't we? I don't think there's <laughs> going to be a war. But... <laughs> but Arthur, can I ask you something? Don't you think that the, the deal over Hong Kong 
was always a little bit of a Brexit. You know, that it was sold as this thing where you could have your cake and eat it. But, you know, for me as an outsider, because I came to the UK around that time, it always seemed really suspicious that, that the UK... True, did the UK truly believe that China would indefinitely have a democratic enclave within its its uh, orbit? Or, I mean, it, it seemed to me that it was always going to head this way. Alex, I think that's a very good point. What I recall uh, at the time was this idea, and, and I'm sure Naomi might recall some of this, having spent time in China, this idea that Hong Kong would gradually work like a sort of vaccination and democratic ideas and ideals would seep into China along with capitalism and other sort of Western things. Now, of course, what we've seen is that capitalism can flourish perfectly well in an authoritarian state. and we and we don't need we don't need democracy and it's gone the other way so you're probably right there was a bit of delusion about it i mean when when uh, the chinese first popped up and said well can we have hong kong back now please because it's only on a lease apparently there were people in the foreign office who had no idea about this and they said oh we thought it was ours to keep so yeah. you know <laughs> there was probably a certain lack of um, <laughs> lack of understanding there Come on, we've all clicked the T and C's box without really reading the T and C's. It was 99 years. Seems like a really long time when you're signing the agreement. But, you know, yeah. your great-great-grandchild has to deal with it. But it's a leasehold on a lovely flat, then suddenly it's exactly. not quite so long after all. Now, the entire country is going stir-crazy and forlornly putting beach scenes up as their desktop wallpapers when they should be booking holidays. How will the travel industry dig itself out after the greatest upheaval in its history? We asked an expert. My name's Sophie Griffiths. I'm editor of Travel Trade Gazette. I think any crisis will obviously exaggerate flaws in a sector, and we really saw that in 2020, of course, with the coronavirus pandemic and the huge refund issue, which totally overwhelmed the travel industry. A huge number of firms, you know, held their hands up. They said they didn't do a good enough job. But that said, they were, of course, dealing with hundreds of thousands of pounds in refunds. You know, if you take EasyJet, for instance, in Q3 in 2020, it said it had more than 250,000 cancellations. I would expect there to now be more scrutiny in 2021 and how travel companies protect client money. And perhaps it was always going that way, but it was obviously exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. I think the issue with the UK government is twofold. I think some of the blame does lie with the travel industry. It's incredibly disparate and there are often opposing voices within the sector. You know, there's been huge frustration with the airlines, for instance, um, by tour operators and agents who've accused them of holding on to refund monies that they then can't pass on to their customers. At the same time, for most politicians, the travel industry only seems to matter when talking about domestic or inbound tourism. I interviewed the tourism minister, Nigel Huddleston, in December, and he demonstrated this point perfectly with a total lack of understanding standing in disregard of the challenges facing the sector. You know, he even mentioned the eat out to help out scheme, which is nothing to do with the UK travel industry. And and his role, he made clear, is is largely to look after the interests of the domestic sector. Well, that doesn't really tally when you look at how much each of the industries contributes to the UK economy. So the outbound leisure and business travel sectors are worth an estimated 37.1 billion to the UK economy. The inbound sector is worth an estimated 28 billion to the UK economy. So it really jars that the outbound sector isn't deemed worthy of having a dedicated minister despite contributing a whole lot more to the economy. 
for the travel industry, the onus is, is going to be on them to make sure that they are presenting consumers with more responsible choices. Flying, of course, is often the target for environmentalists, but it is worth pointing out that a number of airlines are really working hard to examine how they can reduce their own carbon footprint. So, for instance, last February, all the major UK airlines and airports and manufacturers signed up to the Sustainable Aviation Net Zero 2050 roadmap. Um, you've got EasyJet working towards having electric planes entering service by 2030. There's also other issues. So prior to the pandemic, we had the issue of over-tourism. You know, everybody was talking about these destinations that have just been overrun by tourists. Right now, we've got the problem of under-tourism. So there are so many communities around the world that are reliant on tourists, which which are now suffering. And one of the starkest impacts of under-tourism was the threat to conservation projects. You know, as the world shut down, so did the funding for rangers and national park protection. In terms of how you can plan ahead, I know it's really tricky because it's just so much uncertainty at the moment. And, you know, I probably would say this, our readers at TTG are travel agents, but I really would genuinely say the best thing if you want to plan your holiday is to go and talk to a trusted travel agent. They can sit down with you. They can discuss all the different options um, that are available. And crucially, they can tell you how your money is protected. You know, and if you want sustainable options, they can do the work for you and looking into destinations and, and hotels that kind of marry up with what you want. And the best thing is, if anything does go wrong on holiday, you've got the peace of mind of knowing somebody is there um, to look after you. You've got the idea of you know who to call because so many times if people DIY a holiday, if something goes wrong, they're suddenly thinking, oh God, who do I call? How do I get hold of somebody? If you book with a travel agent, you know exactly who to call and who can look after you. And I think, you know, last year highlighted the importance of that more than ever. No, but do you think there's going to be the appetite that there was for travel when all this lifts? You know, even the Love Island lot are catching hell for their Dubai picks. <laughs> I mean, look, stopping people holidaying has been hard enough, to be honest. And, we, you know, we've all seen the scenes that he throw over the last few weeks. Um, and that's, you know, when the R rate for COVID has been one in 15 in certain parts of London and, and people have still tried to travel. Look, there'll be new travel companies, there'll be offers to get customers back, countries everywhere will be running tourism campaigns and, and given that holidaying in Europe will involve passport queues, people might as well go somewhere even more exotic. The only thing stopping people traveling more will be that they've lost their jobs and, and the economic impact of, of it all. I think how people will travel will, will change a bit. And I've been talking to friends about this. That It almost seems weird to me now that I ever did get on a packed tube train at rush hour without a mask on. Um, and, and so I really can't see myself feeling comfortable flying in a metal tube for many hours in the sky with 300 other people without wearing a mask and hand gel, you know, regularly and all of that. Alex, you're from Mykonos. As regular listeners know, this has really hammered the Greek islands, even though Greece's own pandemic response was exemplary. Do you think the destinations are going to have to change? Yeah, I think the cumulative effect will be a focus on quality over quantity. I, th- I think we may be heading for a, a pattern going back to taking one slightly more expensive holiday a year rather than three cheap breaks sort of thing. I, I, and that may not be a bad thing environmentally. Certainly it's more sustainable. And it might also make the holiday experience better, you know, not cramming into tiny legroom situations to fight for a spot on a throbbing beach and and have substandard food and pushed around in crowded clubs. And I think the operators and locations that first realise this will do best. 
Yeah, I quite like that idea. Mykonos there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mykonos has been, always been fabulously exclusive. I, I quite like the idea of uh, three weeks once a year rather than, you know, two weeks twice a year or something like that. Arthur, do governments have a duty to support travel beyond the economic needs? You know, like in the interest of, you know, fostering international contact and understanding and all the rest of it. Our, our current government doesn't really seem to care much about that. Yeah, well, I, you know, one idea might be to make it possible for young people maybe students to go on exchanges with with other countries and then also <laughs> students from their country could come back here because that would help no I, that'll never that's really dumb i'll <laughs> <That'll laughs> never take <laughs> <away>. <laughs> Finally, Matt Hancock's excited for summer 2021. We're going to have a great summer, apparently. But what about Britain's performing artists and musicians? The mixture of COVID and new work and visa regulations post-Brexit are threatening to make music tours from rock and pop to classical impossible. Under the Brexit deal, British musicians and crew who want to play in Europe have to get work permits for each individual country on a tour and face further red tape, including the infamous Carnet for all your equipment and your bits in order to transport equipment. Last week, the DCMS launched an inquiry into the future of UK music festivals with UK Music, the industry body, calling for a Save Our Summer 2021 campaign. Alex, Britain's live music industry has already been disproportionately affected by COVID. The sector's facing four times the average redundancy rate. It, firstly, has the government's cultural recovery fund done enough to support the arts as it compared to what other countries have done? Um, it did at one point, but absolutely not now, because, I mean, think about it logically. How can what was granted six months ago to deal with the first lockdown be enough to deal with a continuing situation? We're now in our third lockdown that goes on for another 12 months. So, you, you know, for the government to be putting that position forward, it is to suggest that they were... Um, you know, insanely overgenerous to start with, and I don't think they were. You're a performer. What's been your experience of the? Uh, I mean, obviously, you've got your as a Greek citizen, you're able to travel wherever you like within the EU. But what have your mm. friends and colleagues been saying about the the new situation? You know, I was looking at the Incorporated Society of Musicians website, who have very good resources on this, and the short answer is that the rules are different for every single country. So if you're looking, for instance, for a short theatre tour, it becomes a virtual impossibility to deal with five or ten different regimes. It's just much easier to say only holders of EU passports need apply, and we are seeing that already. Also, session musicians often have hours to sort themselves out to get to a gig because, you know, they will get a call that, a flautist in this orchestra is ill and we need cover. So UK artists will simply be excluded. Yeah, so the people will literally be getting on a short-haul flight in order to perform in a different country or where yeah, until exactly, this came in. Exactly. That's how session musicians work. That's yeah. how cover opera singers work. It's exactly how it goes. You get a call saying, get on a plane, get to Munich for yeah. tomorrow night. The Musicians' Union has been furious that uh, reports that the government chose to turn down an EU offer of visa-free touring for British musicians, you know, after assuring everybody that the music industry was a, as a priority, that the rights to travel or possible rights to travel for musicians was bundled in with by the British government with a whole load of other rights for business that, and sales and so forth that had already been you know, effectively ruled out. So musicians were kind of collateral damage in this. Is yeah. remarkable for a for a, 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 a government which likes to 
parade uh, Britain is great with a picture of the Glastonbury Festival. And we're not going to see the effect of this for five or ten years because everyone keeps saying that this is destroying what they call the pipeline. So the big bands, the big artists, they will have the management team behind them to sort out all these technicalities. But the people starting out were just the four people playing music as a band um, who were getting bookings for Scandinavian festivals and they were their sort of practice runs for bigger UK festivals. That's the pipeline that's really going to dry out. And, you know, we're losing also leaders in the field who actually do not want a diet of Elgar in Britain with British musicians only. So Simon Rattle just announced he's leaving the LSO after a very short time for the Bayerischen Rundfunks uh, Symphony Orchestra. So our loss, as in so many things, is quite literally Europe's gain. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, at the, at the other end, you know, both of the musical continuum and the kind of, I suppose, the hierarchy is, you know, the band that's just, try- as you just mentioned, the band that's just trying to get a foothold. Most of these artists will do a multi-date tour or would do a multi-date tour of Europe. And if they were lucky, break even. And if you add 1800 quid for a six-piece band just for work permits, and you add the paperwork that goes with the carnets for the equipment for every country. Yeah. And if you're in a situation where, as I was saying earlier on, customs are confiscating a ham sandwich, that's a degree of uh, kind yeah, of may, detail. It, it doesn't make it difficult. It makes it impossible, basically. No, I mean, culture is supposed to be one of Britain's biggest exports, but possibly is the only thing in which we're genuinely world-beating. At a conservative estimate, the music business contributes $5.8 billion or did to the pre-pandemic economy. It certainly employed 190,000 people, according to uh, UK music figures. The, just the Chancellor recognise how much culture boosts his coffers. And if he does, why is he, why is he not batting for it? I mean, look, he must do, right? Because he's the Chancellor and he looks at the numbers. So it, it sort of feels like a choice um, and a very strange one, given that Cool Britannia should really be very much a part of the global Britain brand that this government is is trying to foster. Um, but the government is prioritising other areas of the economy. Um, but as a result, this sector is facing a double whammy of COVID and Brexit, uh, j- just as we've talked about. And, and you're right, Andrew, you know, we are not actually great at exporting much, but by God, we've been amazing at, at music. And as Alex said, you know, it, it won't necessarily be felt for, for five to ten years. And, you know, pop music might be slightly different, but if you're going to be a dancer or a classical musician, you've probably got to have started by the age of five, any later than that, and, and you know, chances of catching up are, are harder. So, you know, the, the signal we're sending is, well, no, no, don't, you know, you might be incredibly talented, but don't pursue that because yeah. you, you simply can't make a career out of it. So so we're telling children to opt out from, from these wonderful subjects, and that's unforgivable. The really depressing and kind of inevitable thing about this is that it's, at bottom it's more culture war. There was a, a story over Christmas about the live industry in general calling for a government insurance guarantee in the style of the one that Germany has. Uh, so that events could go ahead with insurance cover because the commercial insurance industry has basically withdrawn from underwriting live events. It simply can't handle the risk. And the response was not that we should support our culture. The response was, look, it's the rich lefties at Glastonbury who want your taxpayers' money. Ha ha, they deserve it. Perhaps they shouldn't have criticised the government. Look, governments bail out banks, not Banksy, and that's all you need to know. Arthur, the great 
cultural critic John Savage described Brexit as the reversal of everything that started in the 1950s and 1960s. Liberalism, freedom, youth culture, the arts. That's kind of produced the, the, the culture I've, I've just described. Do you think that we are seeing, would you agree with that? Do you think we are seeing a kind of turning of the wheel in that direction? Well, I agree in the sense that the sort of hard Brexit core, I'm sure, don't like the fact that the arts is dominated by people of a liberal persuasion. And of course, you know, art itself often asks difficult questions of people in power. So, yeah, I think that's probably true. Hmm. What are you going to do next time you see a Britain's Great poster in an airport with a picture of a rock band playing who can't go touring anymore? Yeah, well, I think that's where it, it gets much more kind of nuanced in the sense that you've got you've got that weird little Brexit core who who are sort of angry about all kinds of things. But of course, lots of normal people, including conservative people, really like music or really like, you know, going to festivals or opera or whatever it might be. And and it's just just the same as there are lots of people who really like certain things on their supermarket shelves, which are either going to go up in price or disappear <laughs> altogether. You know, it, it, this is this is finally after years of, of all the bullshit. 2021 is when we see what it, all this stuff actually means in real life. And I don't think many people actually like it. You know, I'm sure John Redwood is really excited about, you know, a sort of TV channel devoted solely to Morris dancing. But the rest of us, you know, prefer a bit more diversity. I don't think you can knock Morris dancers, actually. I know somebody who's in a rave Morris dancing organisation. It can be done. And maybe we'll all have to learn to do it. <laughs> we will. It's the future, clearly. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. God knows we need one. The books, films, TV show or music that's providing them with mental escape. Naomi, what's di diverting your mind away from politics at the minute? I've been really enjoying um, a serialised fictional podcast um, called The Cypher. It's a BBC one, um, which is a bit sci-fi. It's a bit sort of, you know, teen romancy. It's It's just got all the ingredients you need for a kind of switch on and, and tune out of, of the real world. And I've really enjoyed it. I think it's What's actually happening in it? Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to do too many spoilers, but basically there's a girl, she's adopted. She um, uh, breaks the code. So she, she, she cracks the cipher. And then all of a sudden secret agents swoop in and abduct her. And why have they abducted her? And why is she able amongst, you know, the billions of people on the planet, the only one that's been able to crack this code? And what does it all really mean? It's very mm, That sounds amazing. Yes, uh, listeners, you're only allowed to listen to it after you've finished listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur, how about you? What's, uh, what's freeing your mind? Well, I'm, I'm currently on, I think it's day four of, of my broadband connection not working. So you know, <laughs> what, what that does is takes you back to more traditional activities like watching DVDs. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the vinyl of video. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I, I was just, it's very complicated explaining to my children that, you know, the DVD only has one thing on it and you can't choose. It's, it's the one <laughs> on the label, you know, it's like, what the hell is this? But, um, but actually, no, I, I, for Christmas, my, my dear aunt Sandra gave me a book by Andrew Adonis about Ernest Bevin. And with the internet finally gone, I actually sat down and started reading it. And I had not realized what an unbelievably interesting person he was born in complete poverty, not just slight poverty, but total footless indigence, the end of the 19th century. And he really personified patriotic 
socialism in a way that Keir Starmer is desperate to adopt. So I hope Starmer has read the book because he's a fascinating character, probably the strongest opponent of Stalinism, much more so than any of the Tories in that era, and, and a really, really sort of titanic figure. It's a funny escape from politics, but I'll let you have it. Alex, how about you? What's yours? So Parks and Recreation mm. have, had never seen a single episode. Was always, on, was always on my to-do list. Started last weekend, and there are 126 episodes to go. <laughs> Crikey. Well, mine, boringly, being pop music, it's the Avalanches album, We Will Always Love You which is came out at the back end of last year. The Avalanches being the Australian sample outfit who made the incredible album since I left you in about year 2001 or something, and then disappeared for 14 years, didn't do anything at all. This is their third album, and it is, again, composed of samples and components of running through like 40 years of music. And the theme behind it is the audio recordings and visuals that were sent into space to uh, uh, an as yet unknown alien civilization, which may one day in billions of years, when we're all dust, receive it, containing Carl Sagan's messages to the love of his life and an image of the love of Carl Sagan's wife. And she's the cover image of the album. And it is a truly moving piece of cosmic pop, which makes you think about the truly important, valuable things, which are other people and the fact that whatever else happens, other people are all we've got. And it is amazing and it will make you cry. And it's got everybody from Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips to Cola Boy to Vashti Bunyan on it. And it's a mind blower. And I advise everybody to listen to it. And that is the end of this week's Bonker. Thank you, Naomi Smith. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you, Alex Andreo. Thank you for having me. And cheers, Arthur Snell. Thank you so much. We're going to be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes at all. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see Twitter, Facebook, or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get the podcast early without adverts, all things like that. And backers get an honorary salute on the show. And here are some now. It's a big, big, big thank you from me to Steve Bellamy, Katie Johnson and Stuart St. John. And best wishes from me to Yossi M. Alaya, Susanna Galvanze-Girenberg, that's one person with a fantastic name. Thank you, Susanna. And Donna Brown. And a big virtual hug from me to Meg Thomas, Alistair Lambert and dear Alan Golding. Finally, hello and best wishes from me to Dina Godfrey, Zuckheeny may actually be a courgette, or maybe it's Mark Zuckerberg with an assumed name. I guess we'll never know. And Jeff Hearman. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alexandreu, Arthur Snell, and Naomi Smith. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.